Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins, and I'm here with my RBP colleagues, Martin Collier. Oh, hi, Barney. And Jasper Mearson Bowie. Hello, Barney. Mark is drinking the last dregs of the summer wine in Crete, but for this episode, we're joined by a living legend of rock photography, the great Kate Simon. Welcome, Kate. Hey, Barney. Nice to see you all. We're going to talk to Kate about the sumptuous new edition of her classic 2004 book, Rebel Music, Bob Marley and Roots Reggae. And we'll also hear clips from a 1983 audio interview with Joni Mitchell, who will be 80 years young the day after this episode goes out. For listeners, Kate is, as I have intimated, one of the great rock photographers One of the great photographers of musicians and artists of all kinds. She shot the cover of the first Clash album, and she's shot Madonna, Damien Hirst, Grace Jones, William Burroughs, countless others, Miles Davis, you name it. As you were saying earlier, Kate, you've pretty much shot everybody. But first off, tell us how the music bug first got you. Was there one kind of moment of epiphany, Kate? I think it was a need for money. (laughs) You know, basically, you know, I came from a... You know, my father was a doctor. My mother was a pianist. Okay. I was raised around classical piano. My brother Greg was a classical pianist. I took classical flute from a very young age. I still can play classical flute. Wow. So, and, you know, so music was, yeah, I think my mother actually made me take voice lessons too, which is pretty tragic. But yeah, so I I think that, that music was all around me. But why I became a music photographer is because I said to my mother on a whim, because I was at George Washington University, Ma, can I drop out of college? And she said, okay. And I was in shock. And I just went to Kennedy Airport right away and flew to London. And then I became a rock photographer because I had had a job at the photographer's gallery when I first arrived in London, where I met all of these great photographers who influenced me. And then I saw there was a a job at Disc and Music Echo, and I went there with one picture of Elton John, and Dave Fudger gave me a full-time job. So it was a need for money. (laughs) Those were the days. Brilliant. Brilliant. Okay, if we back up, was there a a moment when you had a camera in your hands? I think your dad gave you a Polaroid. Was there a moment when you you were looking through the viewfinder or you took a picture and you thought, hmm, I want to do this? Yeah, I think so. You know, I just, I don't mean to sound corny, but I don't think, I think that I was about seven years old and my father and I were really, really close. He died when I was, when I was 17, but I had three brothers and it was just me and me and my dad used to go to the camera store together because he was a a very enthusiastic amateur photographer. And I think that daddy used to take pictures of me and I used to take pictures of him with this old Polaroid. And I just saw, and I still think that it was, I think there's nothing more magic and more enduring and more valuable than a photograph. I mean, when someone's house is blown up, what do they take? The photographs. Yeah. Mm. They don't take the jewels. They take the photographs. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know if I answered your question. But... No, that's that's lovely. And I mean, Jasper is a photographer. Martin is a photographer. Martin yeah. and our colleague Mark uh, had a fantastic photography site when I first met them. And so I know they have real interest in this and real appreciation of your art, Kate. I mean, Martin, do you can you remember the first time you saw or were conscious of like looking at a Kate Simon photograph? 
I, it wasn't disc, so it must have been a bit later than that. I, I'm pretty sure probably Clash pictures. So maybe you were working for the NME then? How, how I was long working did... for Sounds. I for worked sounds. for Sounds. That's and again, where I would have seen it. Dave Fudger, who, who gave me my first job. Went to Sounds? He moved to Sounds, and me and him worked really well together at Sounds. I, would I you come him. to him and say, I want to shoot this group? Or would he say, I want you to go to Birmingham and... Yeah, he did. He did that. But then, you know, who you're shooting for is so significant, whether it's Chris Blackwell or Dave Fudger. I mean, I just wanted to always come back with the goods. And I loved working with Dave. And I think, to make a point, I think that Dave Fudger's design skills were so acute and how he affected the whole sort of look of punk was really significant. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's interesting. Yeah, it was sounds, yeah. Is he still with us? Sorry, just in. Is Dave still alive? I think he should be. I mean, God, God bless him. I tried to find him not long ago. I saw him in London. I don't know. I mean, he should be celebrated, and you should mm. talk to him if you can because he was brilliant. Well, I always loved his name. It always sounded like if you were going to make up the name of a kind of seventies rock <laughs> journalist. Dave Fudger yeah. would probably be it. <laughs> but also, I Sid Vicious did beat him up, so he's oh, got some. Right. He's got a story to tell. <laughs> he's, he's, in, he's in that club. He's in the club. <laughs> but did you, Kate, what brought you to London? Why was London the place that you went and bought a, That's a good question. plane ticket to? Well, I wanted to tell you, I went to my second year in college at the American College in Paris. And I wanted to mention, this is pretty significant, I met Jim Morrison there. Wow. Yeah, he was very special. He came up to me at the First National City Bank on the Champs-Élysées and asked me if I would teach him French. And I was with two guys from college with me. And I said, sure. And all I was thinking, and this is very characteristic of me, is will you help me write my term paper for Long Day's Journey and Tonight? So Jim helped me write that. Wow. I've never <laughs> heard that story before. Wow. It's yes, amazing. That's, that's a true story. But I mean, what made me go to London to answer your question, Martin, is that there I was in Paris and I got to really like London from being in college there. And that's why I thought this is a great place. And some of my friends from George Washington University had moved there. And so I went to join them and I was working at a shop on High Holborn called Stock as well. And, you know, I just it was because of my friends and my youth that I... I knew that I was supposed to be a photographer, not to get verbose, but when I was in George Washington University, I went to the Cochrane School of Art for a photography course, and I had a great professor there. So I knew I was supposed to be a photographer. So I just wanted to get out of college and start my life as a photographer. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Kate, I happen to live very near the old Olympic studios, which is now like a swanky, you know, restaurant, uh, cinema screens, and everything's very, very, very she she now. Yeah, I can't believe but, it. But it still, it, it like still gives a nod to its rock and roll past. Okay, yeah, so you, 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 there are kind of echoes of every. I mean, I went there when it was a studio, but so it's it's kind of mixed feelings when when I go there, but I know that's an important place in your story and your journey. Cause there's that amazing shot you took of David Bowie yeah. on January 14th, 1974. So how did yeah. you come to be there? Was that the first time you'd gone to Olympic studios or what? 
Yeah, you know, he was a. I went there to answer your question, Barney, to photograph Stomu Yamashita. Right. Now, I was good friends with Michael Shreve. I thought he was just brilliant. And he was. Yes. And Stomu Yamashita yeah. and Michael Shreve were working. And then I just, you know, I just moseyed down the hall and I opened up the door. And there in the studio, alone in this room, playing acoustic guitar brilliantly, was David Bowie. So I walked in, and then I took I I started taking his pictures. He was do he was working on Diamond Dogs, so that was just by chance. And then I I I, I photographed David Bowie a lot, and then ultimately, he became my neighbor in upstate New York, which was kind of a coincidence. But <laughs> he was I, I photographed him, you know, in Paris, in Philadelphia. I have, I have a lot of David Bowie stories and memories. I just thought the world. I thought he everyone just. He was great. And I remember that Charlie Murray and my then boyfriend, Joe Stevens, they talked about David Bowie constantly. Right. Right. <laughs> yes, they did. And, and David called you Bet. Yeah, he did. Yes, he did. <laughs> Why? I don't know. There I was at Olympic Studios. And I, I just, I repeat, I couldn't believe how brilliantly this man was playing the guitar. And I went in and took, the, uh, took a few frames and he was very nice and then he did, he kept saying, oh, hold on, please. This is Bob Marley's cook calling me. Just keep it real. Oh, we love it when people <laughs> phone in. <laughs> Bob Marley's still, cook. I just love him. <laughs> yeah, I just love him. Gilly. So what was I saying? I'm sorry. You were taking photographs of, of Bowie in the Olympic Studios. Oh, yeah. And then he just he just said that I reminded him of Met, Bette Midler. And then, you know, he gave me a lift back into because he was living on Oakley Street in that famous house where subsequently Bob Marley lived. And he took me in his limousine back to London. He didn't say a word through the whole trip. And then he said, I'll see you again. And he certainly did. He became my neighbor in Woodstock, you know. Oh, my God. Yeah. He was quite close. I mean, I remember really close, this. right around the corner from me. Was he a good neighbor? He was fantastic. And the, and the, the woman at the Bear Market Cindy kept saying, "Would me and David Bowie would be the only two people in the shop?" And she kept saying, "Kate, go over there, say he'll talk to him." And you know, me and David Bowie were looking at each other like, "Do we want to have that conversation?" No, we both don't. <laughs> we both know who we are. Meaning, I'm not David Bowie, but you know, I mean, yeah. just because he's famous doesn't mean he has a he doesn't have a memory. I, uh, so anyway, so that that was uh, that one David Bowie experience. Yeah. Oh. To go back to London in the kind of mid. 70s an amazing place one of the pieces we're featuring on the home page is a really lovely interview that our friend paul gorman did with you for his oh, yeah, blog good. and he talks about these four notable american women in london at that time which was you chrissy hind judy nylon and patty paladin and you know what a kind of impact you had can, can I interrupt you for a second? Yeah, he of actually is. He's, he's actually he's that's so brilliant. That's so smart of him. He's actually writing a piece about the four of us. Well, no, he mentioned this oh. in the interview he did with you. But that's right. He's, okay. he's the guy who like documents that whole kind of period I know. because he wrote the McLaren yeah, biography. Great book. There you go. Yeah. So uh -huh. yeah, but I just 
I read this interview we've we've and I asked Paul if we could yeah. add it to RBP, so it's gonna be on the home page. And it just I yeah. just thought it was an interesting observation that that yeah, the four of so you too. were there and you kind of knew each other and played a significant role in what was I guess about to happen or what was already fomenting, which was punk, punk rock. And you were there April seventy six when that kind of melee yep. occurred at the Nashville yep. rooms. Yep. So what was your first inkling of what was happening in terms of punk rock in London? And did you relate it in any way to what was happening in New York since you were from the East Coast? You were from from you know, I'm from so Poughkeepsie. you must you're from Poughkeepsie. Yes. But you I mean you must have spent you know, you had some inkling of what was going on in yeah. terms of yeah. of Patty, the Ramones, and so forth. So, what was your? No, sense I shot of- a lot. I shot all that stuff. You did. I just want to say that it's Judy Nylon who always used to say, "Kate, you know, us American women. For a lot of these punk guys, we were the first American women these guys met." And yes. Judy is no fool. Got far from it. <laughs> and I just thought, yeah. So I think that I think that probably a lot of these musicians that. You could all these punk musicians that you could think of. They thought of Patty Paladin, a serious genius, and Judy, same thing, mm. and Chris, same thing, and me. I mean, they really they were spoiled for choice. I mean, we were all yes. geniuses. Yes, um, yes. <laughs> and um, how this sort of worked out for me was that Caroline Kuhn had this flat around the corner from where I was living in Fulham on Finborough Road. And this flat on, Tri- do you, is it Trigunter Road? Trigunter, Trigunter yeah. Road, yeah. yeah. Her flat was this meeting place, and it was, this is where punk in London was born. And I was there with me and Paul Simonon and Mick Jones. We would sort of just go upstairs and smoke a spliff. And Caroline and John Ingham would stay downstairs and postulate and think (laughs) and talk about punk like it was the most serious thing. This is, I'm sure you've heard this from John, but that's, does that answer your question a little bit? Because that really did happen. Well, one of the things that really interests me is just how tightly woven this scene was. You know, it's not really been like that for a long time, but the journalists were really embedded, weren't they? And there was no real... It was the kind of division between, like, you know, aspiring musicians and the journalists who were writing about them. They were all kind of mixed in and influencing each other. Does this that? And we're actually making, we've made John Ingham the featured writer for the week to sort of tie in with the theme. So, sounds, you already mentioned sounds and Dave Fudger, and sounds incredibly important in, in the story of punk in London. Tell us about just your memories of sounds and your memories of John. Your memories of Vivian Goldman. Okay. And Giovanni D'Adamo. Yeah. Well, you know, that's a broad question, Barney. And what you have to remember, I think, about sounds is I was on the road with Queen, you know, and I was on the road with Leonard Skinner. I was on the road with The Who. And then with for sounds, you know, I shot Led Zeppelin at rehearsing. And they sent me on the road. I said Ozzy Osbourne. They were always sending me on the road with these rock bands. And then they were always sending me out to Rod Stewart's house in Windsor. And he was an incredibly great subject and a lovely guy. 
And so I got used to photographing him in his latest sweater acquisition or by his newest Excalibur <laughs> or his in, newest in the Heather, you know, it would, you know, and his carpet slippers in his uh, having brandy for breakfast. But he was he was great. So, so I would just say about sounds, they sent me on the road with with the who pretty much everybody. What was your own personal taste in music at this? point? Yes. Were you, were you more drawn towards? What was what was brewing in in punk than than what was perceived as the kind of old school of you know Zeppelin? Well, you and... know, I really I really liked the I really liked the Clash. I just really was very fond of them as people, and I thought Joe Strummer was one of the greatest people I ever met. You know, I was really fond of all these people, the the Clash and and Lydon too. I mean, I think oh you yeah, know, I love it's, John. It's, yeah, yeah, you, he was you, really smart. So yeah. what's your question, Martin? And was I close with these people? I'm sorry again. Well, no, I just want whether your own personal taste was very broad or or were you drawn more to the emotions involved in the people that you knew? Or, you know, or how did you come from that to reggae? You know, what happened with me was very defined by my good friendship with Anna Capaldi. Anna Capaldi's husband, Jim, her former husband started traffic yeah. and she introduced me to Albert Grossman, Bob Marley and Led Zeppelin. And this is significant because Albert went on to be one of the most important people in my life. And so did Bob Marley. And she got it. She introduced me to Led Zeppelin so that I could go out to Jimmy Page's house with the, the moat and the black swans. And I could go to Robert Plant's house and meet his children. And so that's not exactly what you're saying. But what I'm thinking is that this whole life that you could lead at that time was so unique. And yeah. being on commit, being on, a, on the staff of Sounds, I would be shooting someone from America during the day, like James Brown or Bobby Womack. And then I'd be shooting a live show amongst sort of the typical kind of 12 of us photographers. I could still name their names. They're all great <laughs> photographers. And I'd be shooting a great show at night. I would say that my taste, I really loved Lowell George. I shot mm -hmm. him a ton. And me and Anna loved him. He was brilliant. I still think he, and I, I'm telling you, I never met anybody I liked more than Bobby Womack. Oh. I mean, we became friends. I'd go and see him at his house in LA. I would turn Japanese journalists on to him. I adored him. That's the way I feel about you. loved his music and you know Vivian Goldman played a huge role in my life because you know Viv she's the one who would say okay Kate we're going to Jamaica so I spent a ton of time with her mm -hmm. down in Jamaica and it was perfect because <laughs> she was really it was like I was down there and I was just dying to get the pictures and she was down there we were a great team so I, I went yeah. to Jamaica with Viv a lot as far as photographing, you know, the act of photographing itself, did you have a preference as to what you liked shooting best between, you know, you were going to live shows and you were shooting candid 
pictures of people just hanging out. And then later on, you were shooting more stage stuff as well for the face and that sort of thing. Like, what, what's your preference as to how you like to photograph and how do you go about doing that? Well, I always like to shoot people. One of the things I really like about photography is quiet, which kind of is, is kind of going to dictate my response to your question, which is to say, ideally, I like to shoot somebody in their home. Whether it's Richard Thompson, who I photographed at his home in West Hampstead, or Iggy Pop in his home in Miami, you know, not that long ago. I mean, I like to shoot people in their home. And when I was young, I really loved those shows, but it was before everything got really nuts. Like now, I can't imagine what it's like to to do that. I think you get to shoot the first two numbers and that's it. Oh, yeah. And there were no yeah. contracts or anything. Yeah. and. And there, as I said, there were sort of 12 of us and we all knew each other. We all liked each other. And every one of them really technically was, was someone that I respected. And I would just say that I really loved shooting people in their homes. And that hasn't changed. And what yeah. do you look for when you're photographing someone, say a musician? You know, what, what, are you, what are you trying to get out of the image? I'm looking for their intelligence. I mean, that's really what I'm not looking for it, but... That's what stimulates me, if that kind of makes any sense. I just, mm -hmm. I mean, you're not talking humor, even though, of course, I love a good sense of humor. You're not talking humor when you're taking somebody's portrait. You're talking somebody that has a sense of self and they, it's almost telepathic. And you feel, and this will sound a little bit obtuse, but you feel kind of pre, pre it, it feels to me, it's always felt rather predetermined who I'm supposed to photograph particularly people I'm supposed to photograph over a long spate of time, like William Burroughs, who I started photographing in 1975, and I, didn't, and I photographed him for 20 years. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I felt that way about Patti Smith and Bob Marley, most prominently. Yeah. I mean, we'll get to Bob, but Bob's a whole different thing I for think me. That makes a lot of sense, what you said about looking for someone's intelligence, because one of the things that's really striking to me about your photographs is that the personality of the subject really comes out and is really on display. And you can really kind of see the three-dimensional person behind the two-dimensional photograph in a way that it's very you. special, and and I think so. Thank that you. that answer is for me pretty perfect. Mm, yeah, that's a lovely way of putting it, Jasper. I feel the same way about many of your images. Thanks, Kate. thanks, thanks. One of the things I love about the pieces that we've selected for the home page is that you you have like cameo roles in 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 all of them. You, you're you're a character in the story, and that isn't necessarily true about many rock photographers, but Vivian mentions you frequently in that great long 1976 mm -hmm. piece that you went out there with. And then there's a, there's a Giovanni, you're in that piece about Richard Hell. Right. John Ingham's piece about Patti Smith, you're all over that as well. And there's, Yeah, there's that was great, a riot. It's great <laughs> moments. And I just wanted to, yeah. to cite, for example, that the, in Vivian's piece, which is Sounds 16th of October 76, Black Punks on Herb. Yeah, that is was a great piece. Title. And there's a moment where you're, you're shooting Peter Tosh. And so I'll just read this paragraph. He turns angrily to Kate, who's busily snapping away, a model of unobtrusive Western professionalism. And he says to you, I can make every shot that you take disappear from your camera. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> of course I can, he roars. 
And Vivian goes, I'll bet you could at that, I answer, meaning it, but he's not convinced. And then he rounds on Vivian and says, you think this is joke business? So yeah. Yeah, so Peter's getting a little riled. And, and yeah, anyway, but you were taking pictures of, of him. There's also great moments in the Patty Smith. There's a great moment in the Patty Smith piece yeah. where she she says to you, and I guess also to John, you're writing a story for sound. Well, there's two ways you can take it. You could be a journalist and we sit in a room and do an interview and I don't see you any other time. Or you're just one of the boys and hang out and you don't print what you see and hear. And then she says, because the press have really done me in lately. Which is interesting considering she mm. had been a rock journalist herself. She's suddenly like sitting on the other side of the fence. Tell us just a little bit about, you know, how how it's been for you taking photos of, you know, can quite cantankerous people like Peter and then working with, you know, Vivian and John on, you know, on assignments like that. Well, Viv is right about Peter Tosh. And after he shamed her, he said there was some lightning that came (laughs) in the sky and he went, you hear that? I made that happen. Stop, <laughs> Rastafari. And, you know, I was just down in wow. Jamaica for the first time, and this was just one of many. I mean, Bunny Whaler had things to say, and, you know, I was just, I'm sure you did make that lightning happen. <laughs> yeah. Okay, now yeah. stand back, chin down. You know, I just was on trying to get the, the job done. Was it hard to be in Jamaica? To, to... No, it was, it was a dream. Good. It was a dream. It was a dream. And so many of these amazing photos that you took on that trip and subsequent trips are in this book, Rebel Music. Yeah. And they're, they're all wonderful. They're amazing characters. Fame, I mean, images that any listener to this will, will have would have seen, seen, you know, countless times of Marley, mm-hmm. of, of, of Lee Perry in the Black Ark studio, etc. So you went there ostensibly to shoot Bunny Whaler because right, Black yeah. Ark Man was coming right. out and Blackwell, Chris Blackwell funded yeah. the trip, but it turned into much more of a kind yes. of photo essay sort of experience for you, right? And you, you, you yes. shot so many people. I think I shot the Kaya cover that, during that trip. Yeah. Yeah. I'd been racing Chris Blackwell on the breaststroke, and Chris won. I got <laughs> out of the pool. I've told this story before, of course, but, you know, it's, this is what happened. And there was Bob, and I took the Kaya cover and, and a few other rolls of film. That first trip to Jamaica, I mean, Burning Spear, Gregory Isaacs, Peter Tosh, Bunny Whaler, Leroy Smart, Dillinger. Big youth, big youth, that amazing youth, picture, thanks. big youth, yep. Ross Michael. The Twinkle Brothers, the Congos, the Heptones, the Gladiators. I mean, I could go on. It was just <laughs> and and just the way they were dressed and the way they moved and the intelligence and the culture. It was it was so inspiring. And, you know, that so it was a great, great, great place to shoot. Did you adjust your photography to that setting, or did you just go and think, I'm gonna do my thing? here and that's going to translate through what I'm doing. I think my my first thought was that I just adjusted my light readings because I had to, you know, I had to I didn't use More a spot sun. meter so I'm just thinking More technically. Sun. I just, you know, because it was very bright sun and slower film, faster shutter speeds. Yeah, 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 right, slower film. 
That's yeah, but no, I mean, obviously, I took my 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 same brain, yeah. my same predispositions, my same skills, and and I was just in a warmer climate. I'd never seen turquoise water like that, like I saw in Ocho Rios, where I shot Jack Ruby and Justin Hines and King Tubby at his studio. And, you know, I just loved being with Scratch. You know, it really just set me up to go on the road with Bob on the Exodus tour. And I went back to Jamaica many, many times. I went back. I was sent there by Warner Brothers. And I I sort of became one of the go-to photographers to go down there. I shot culture down there. And, you know, I still like going down there. I mean, I still think there's no place like Jamaica. Yeah. Beautiful. So, Kate, tell us about the the new edition of Rebel Music, Bob Marley and Roots Reggae, which comes out next week, Genesis Publications. The book originally came out in 2004, but this is definitely updated and enhanced. And I know that Lenny Kravitz and Keith Richards have contributed to it. So so tell us when you started thinking about or did, whether Genesis asked you to do a new edition. Tell us about the story of this new edition. Well, I think it's important that you mention, Barney, that Patti Smith wrote the introduction to this book, and it's absolutely beautiful. I mean, I, I always thought it was really great, but then I, you know, I reread it recently, and I just think it's Patti's introduction to the book is so brilliant. And when I was on the road with her, when I was in, when I first met her in in the seventies, she always wore a shirt that said "Love Rastafari and Live," and so she her writing the introduction is very meaningful and important. And so you want me to talk about the significance to the new book, which is the significance is that I, you know, I thought the I thought working with Genesis was a dream because their paper is so beautiful. I really like the company. I like Nick. I like all the people there so much. And I always just, everyone just said to me, I wish I could get this book and it wasn't sort of so sort of expensive because the original limited edition was worth it because it was printed brilliantly. Mm -hmm. Um, Like there were 24 different paper stocks, one of which was hemp. You could have smoked the book. (laughs) So I always wanted them. Yeah, (laughs) some have. So I just, I just always was like really keen to do, to have them ideally do an edition that was more affordable. And so they finally decided to do that. And so to make it special, I had found some new color pictures and new black and white pictures. And so it's not exactly the same. There's more photographs. And I think it came out really well. We worked really hard on it. And am I right in saying there are are photographs in there that you had found subsequent to yeah. the 2004 publication. So yeah. you, you unearthed some, some new shots that, and they're in there and some of them are in there. Yeah. They're all in there. I found all in there. a bunch Beautiful. of color and this black and white picture of Bob that they use, they put in the publishers copies that are these sort of numbered editions that are signed by Patty Smith. And, yes. But then the trade edition is the one that will, be available for everyone, you know, on Amazon. And what does that, what does right. that re- retail at as a matter of interest, the trade edition? It's $55. Okay, that's, that's, that's really yeah. pretty it's, reasonable. And it's worth it because it's a hardback and it's beautiful. And, I mean, I'm a book freak, so I just think it's a, it's, it's a good, I think it's really worth it. You mentioned black and white and color. And, I mean, I'm assuming a lot of that would have been to do with whatever assignment you were shooting for, you know, particularly yeah. live stuff in black and white and stuff. But did you, were there times when you chose to shoot one or the other because of something that it conveyed? 
Well, you know, a lot of people, I mean, there's a lot of people would argue in the broad sense that photography is a black and white. The language of photography is black and white. Language of shapes. You know, I love black and white. I'm a, I'm a collector. If you could see behind me, you'd see a print by Robert Frank. You'd see four prints by Allen Ginsberg. I love black and white. I also have, I like color too. I don't know. I don't really think I thought like that. I don't really thought, I, I think the, no, what I would think is if I really needed fast film and I really wanted a lot of latitude, then there was nothing like Tri-X film and Tri-X film is really stable. So all of these images that I took of Bob Marley on Tri-X film, you know, 40 years ago or more, they're still, they're still perfect. They're stable. Yeah. The film is really stable. So I would say the one thing I do th- did think about and one does think about is how color film, it, do- it, you, it, it doesn't age as well as black and white. And you've got to be very mindful about keeping it cold. You don't want it to be hot and steamy. So it's affected my life. Like anybody who's ever boiling a pot of pasta around my film, you know, I'm having a mood swing. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned Marley. Can you just tell us a bit about, about Bob Marley, since he's obviously the central figure in, the, in rebel music. And just when you think about him all these years after he passed, you know, how do you remember him? What is, what is your kind of abiding memory of him as a guy, as a friend? as an icon as well. I mean, it's hard to say because it's interesting when you, you, you knew somebody and you work with somebody and you just, you just, just genuinely really admired them and liked them. And they were so agreeable and I'm not, I'm not in any way idealizing him. I'm just saying we had, we had a good rapport Mm -hmm. and, you know, I certainly didn't think of him as a deity. And so it's a unique it's a unique experience that someone that I photograph so much has become so huge, you know, around the world. And I would say there's no one that is more deserving. He was so lovely. And I mean, I saw, I, I went to so many shows because I was on the European Exodus tour and I shot all of the sound checks and all of the shows. And I just, I'm not surprised that he's so beloved because mm you know, he was giving people a sense of non-fear. He was encouraging, he was uh, consoling. He encouraged people to stand up for your rights. But I just think that his message was really eternal. And I was just lucky to meet him. I mean, there was nothing intimidating about him. There was nothing creepy about him. And he was just so professional it was just inspiring to see him work so that's pretty much all mm. i can say about him yeah yeah no that's yeah. That, that's that's beautiful there's an amazing moment in a mojo piece that i was reading about him and about your photographs of him where you said after he died one of the newspapers pitched to you that if you could get a picture of Bob lying in state, they'd pay you a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And you told them, consider it done, even though there was absolutely no way you were going <laughs> to do it. But you figured that if you said yes, it would put them off commissioning somebody else to do it. And I absolutely love that That's because I think, thing, isn't it? I think it's, but particularly within photography. And if you think about the history of say street photography and the notion of consent within that, let's say photography has a checkered past about that. But I think that, you know, there is a responsibility that that one has as a photographer. And I think that that quote from you just really emblematizes that, that you said, you know, not only did you refuse to do it, but you also took whatever steps you could to prevent it from happening at all. I just think that's fantastic. 
Mm. Well, nobody really compares to how Bob Marley has stayed in my consciousness. And I could have never known that, you know, 40 some years ago, that this person would still be so significant mm -hmm. to my psyche. I mean, there was no way I would have shot Bob, photographed him rather lying in state. I didn't want to, I didn't go in and see him lying in state. I didn't want to see him like that. I photographed the funeral and then I was with the, the cortege going all the way from Kingston to St. Anne. He was a really once in a lifetime subject. Well, I mean, just wanted to say it's, it's it's such a great time for your book to come out, given that it's 50 years since both Catch a Fire and Burning, those two like seminal, vital albums in the kind of Whalers story. The first I bought both of those when they when they came out, and they still mean a lot to me. Burning still sounds pretty kind of righteously angry. I like that, um, yep. <laughs> and that's the music, Jasper. You were asking me. I mean, that's the music I still listen to. I mean. I listened to Kind of Blue. In fact, I would say that I was friends with Tim Buckley. He used to stay with me and Joe Stevens. I used to live with Joe. And I remember so so many musicians over the course of my career, I asked what their favorite record was, and they pretty much all said Kind of Blue <laughs> when I was young. I mean, not, yeah, so I listened to Miles and I listened to Bob pretty much. That's my favorite mm, stuff. Mm. Yeah. So these days, well, it's a one final question about your photography. How much of your time is spent photographing and how much is spent, you know, is taken up by your archive and your licensing? I imagine that yeah. it must take up most of the time now. No, I mean, the way it happens with me is I shoot, 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 shoot for about a decade. And then I stop and then I don't, it's always been like that. And then the muse returns, not to sound, you know, I don't know, then it comes back. And so I, I start making these lists of people that I want to shoot. Mm -hmm. So I'm in the, I'm, in, I'm now in the phase of making a list and then I'll shoot these people again. I mean, I just want to keep working my, until, until I drop. Who's on your list at the moment? I can't say <laughs> because the list is all <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I, I got some good ones on there, but whenever I make that list up, I pretty much realize every, it, I've, I always realize the list. I mean, I, mm. I realize the list. I, it's, yeah. Are they, are they music figures or no, art the, figures um, or writers? Well, right now I got a, a painter. I got an actor. They're artists of all kinds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, my music career was specific to my living in England. And then when I moved to New York in the late 70s, I worked for Face out of New York for a while. And that was just into like the 80s. And then I became, I was really, really good friends with Stephen Sprouse. And my best friend was Carl Apfelschnitt, who was a painter who died of AIDS. And I became very intrigued by the New York art world and Carl really taught me how to navigate the art world. And I started really wanting to photograph painters and I was working with William and I, I just, I, I became intrigued by the whole New York art life of, of photographing that. And 
Um, so it just it's just a natural kind of development. Yeah. Yeah. On your website, there's a lovely photo of a young Michael Zilker who was sitting in this room. Oh, I with love Michael. Jasper and myself just what two three weeks ago we had. Yeah. He he just came by to say hello, and we had like two hours of just wonderful conversation with him and my my dear friend Oscar from LA, who also happened to be in town. And it just it was just one of those serendipitous kind of gatherings. Uh, it's He's just, lovely. Like, I mean, Michael's just so lovely. Yeah, and and I listened to your interviews. I would just like to commend all you gentlemen. I love the one with Michael and David and Vivian and Mary and Charles Charmurray and Nick Kent and all my friends. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. Well, <laughs> well shout you. out to shout out to David Sigerson because he's been a dear friend of mine. He's, he was responsible for me becoming a music journalist in the first place. I owe him everything and I love him. And whenever I see David, he always mentions you. Always oh, really? name checks you. He <laughs> oh, wow. absolutely adores you. And um, your interview with David to interrupt on purpose was brilliant. <laughs> it was it was it was music to my ears because that man can talk about music right. It's right up my tree. I mean, the stuff he likes, I like, and he can talk about it from having run all these record companies mm. and you know from a musical perspective. Mm. I just was in heaven when you were doing that one. Oh, he was, good, he well was a really great writer when he was writing. Yeah, he was. On, on music, smart. especially on black music. He was fantastic. And also, his novels are fantastic. Faithful. Faithful I mean, is, is amazing. Great book. Really, like, underrated, beautiful piece of writing. Exquisite piece of writing. Anyway, we love all of all the people you mentioned. Now, and, wait a minute. Uh, I do have a little story. We got to stay with David for half a second. <laughs> All right, so I was with David, and we were at we were in L.A. Oh, uh, oh, I can't remember the guy's name now, but he had this black swimming pool. Anyway, I can't remember his name, but anyway, I remember having being with him, and I had to shoot somebody, and he had his swimming pool was a black swimming pool, and and David will remi- will remind you who it was, but sorry, I I can't remember. Oh, it sounds like the Tropicana Motel wasn't there wasn't their swimming pool painted black because there were so many things like just tipped into it like beer bottles and syringes and things <laughs> oh, and I so don't know about they painted that. it black so nobody could see what was lurking in the deck. <laughs> in the deck. Um, i always liked the tropicana i mean they would say you can stay at the hilton and i would say no let's stay at the tropicana yeah i like that well, place let's stay with la for a second because we are okay. going to kind of switch co- uh, coasts away from your natural habitat we're gonna okay. we're gonna go go to the new golden land of Joni Mitchell as, okay. as kind of trailed at the beginning of the episode. So thank you for every, just everything you've said about your career and your book and your, your subjects and your photography. It's been really, really beautiful. And we will name check rebel music at the end of the episode, but we're going to just talk briefly about Joni Mitchell. Cause we have this audio interview. She's 80 years old the day after this episode like airs as it were. And we had two Joni, audios on rocks back pages including the interview that i did with her in 1994 which is one of the best i've ever done it was just such an honor and treat to speak with her and we have an interview that stephen daly did for rolling stone but dave zimmer sent us some tapes just about like a couple of months ago he sent us the tapes of interviews he did for his this book that listeners can't see but i'm pointing to crosby stills and nash is kind of his definitive inside story of the supergroup, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. 
And he interviewed them and he interviewed Joni for that book in 1983 while she was recording Dog Eat Dog at A&M Studios. So it's about like half an hour of Joni really talking about her own career, but also talking about Crosby and then Nash and then Stills, good friends of hers. And of course, all former lovers of of Mm. hers as well. So she really knew them. But I thought it would be interesting just to, we're going to hear one clip that Jasper's going to play, which sort of sums up to some degree that whole thing that was going on in Laurel Canyon in LA, where all these people were sort of having an affairs with each other and writing songs about each other. So Jasper, take it away. I think... Rock and Roll Woman? Yeah. Is that about me? Who is that about, you know? Uh, oh, because <laughs> I, you know, I'll tell you, like, Ollie, we all think, of course, you know, yeah, right. you're so vain, you probably think this song is about you, but the way <laughs> things go down and because of the close-knitness of everything, people see pieces of themselves in songs, which may, just like any fan, you yeah. know, like it may be, you know, a form of media madness where you just over-identify with what, because you are associated uh-huh. with the people, you wonder, yeah. you know, if, if these are portraits. Yeah. But um, Stephen, I knew the least of, uh, 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 I don't know Stephen well. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, not perhaps unsurprising that she would say she knew Stephen the least. Perhaps he was the hardest to know out of the three of those. But she nonetheless did did have a fling with him, and I think it was very hurtful to to Graham in particular. Anyway, it's really interesting hearing her talking about these guys in a very in a perceptive way. She's very funny about Crosby. She's she's interesting about him producing her debut album for Reprise. And let's hear the second clip, which is, it's very interesting because she's talking about Woodstock, which as many listeners will know, she never got to Woodstock. You know, the opening line, by the time we got to Woodstock, well, she never got there because she was had to stay in New York to do the Dick Cavett show. They were afraid that she wouldn't be able to get back for that. And then she wrote this amazing song about the festival. So let's listen to what she has to say. reason impressed me as a modern miracle, mm-hmm. you know, like a modern-day fishes and old story, or, yeah. you know, and that people, that many people cooperated so well. I mean, I'm sure you can cite examples of bad behavior, but overall, for a herd yeah. that large, it was pretty remarkable. And, you know, a tremendous optimism. It was very emotional. When I wrote that song, the first three times I performed it in public, I burst into tears. Mm-hmm. It brought back the intensity of the experience it was so movie to you know. and they immediately latched onto it because you know, the movie was coming out on, on almost on the spot and yeah. hearing the song they said oh we gotta have that <laughs> you know yeah theme songs time we got to woodstock we were half a million strong and everywhere there was so 
yeah, so because she did a fantastic version. I think it's one of her greatest songs on Ladies of the Canyon. And then Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young at that point did it on uh, Deja Vu. I think I've got that accurately. Have I, Martin? I think you have. Can't, can't trust my memory anymore. But I mean, I, I think I marginally prefer her version. I wanted to ask you, because you, you grew up in Poughkeepsie and you've... You know upstate New York very, very well. I mean, were you uh, in 1969? I, I take it you didn't Oh, go- I can take you there. I can take you there <laughs> way from the inside. <laughs> I can go right there. Okay. There it is. Okay. Okay, so I'm from Poughkeepsie, New York. It's about 35 miles. Or it's about, what's well, probably about an hour away from Woodstock, but it's a country mile. It's, a, it's an easy drive. And prior to Woodstock in the summer of 69, they had these festivals that you write about in your brilliant book, Small Town News, called the Sound Outs. Did you, and you wrote about them. And me and yes. my brothers would go to them, and they were fantastic. And I mean, as they, they weren't that many people, but they were really magical. And, they, you know, it was like a fire, there was a good fire. And so then when the Woodstock Festival happened in the summer of 69, I wasn't shocked. So to stay on topic, me and, you know, about 10 guy friends of mine, I always had tons of guy friends, right? We got in a, you know, you know, like a, a hippie van and <laughs> we drove to the Woodstock site and it was too crowded. And I said to everybody, oh, there's just no way that we're, we're staying at this. This is, this is nuts. <laughs> we're leaving. And so I probably have about six friends who to this day say, yeah, I would have seen that festival, but Kate Simon had to make us turn around. Uh, that's my story from the inside. Well, yeah. that's, that's great. great. So you're kind of like Joni. You didn't, you didn't make it. Didn't didn't make it. No. it was crazy. I mean, I was in a hippie van and, you know, uh, a Volkswagen hippie van. And it was just, just, it was just like, it was insane. It was, well, my brother went through the whole thing, Bobby, and he liked it. And my friend Sarah did, but the people I was with, we all we turned around. <laughs> I'm sure you've heard that story innumerable times, Barney. Right? I probably would have done the same thing. I mean, it's worth noting that she did make it to Woodstock years later, and I saw her perform in 1998 at the. It was called a Day in the Garden. I don't know if you were mm. there, Kate. Yeah, no, I wasn't. But uh, and it was it was a strange like day actually because it was her pete townsend and lou reed two two <laughs> figures who re- i know townsend played at the original woodstock yeah. but if you're going to celebrate the kind of peace and love kind of thing in the cat skills i don't think townsend or lou reed would necessarily be your your first choices i don't really <laughs> rem- remember the music that that well there's but- a fantastic version of summertime from that I believe oh, it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah Secret, okay. It's somewhere around. Um, okay. With Larry Klein playing bass. It's fantastic. And Mark yeah. Isham, I think, playing trumpet. Wonderful. Brilliant. I remember um, this is kind of like vaguely connected to that. When you mentioned Lou Reed and you mentioned Woodstock, I remember Sally Grossman, who had issues about your book. You remember? She was so. She, oh, sure. I sure. couldn't follow that at all. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't follow it. But she did, did you know Sally? With, did you know Sally? Very, I knew Sally really, really yeah, well right, right. for you know because I was very close Al, with Albert. Albert. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I was. I'm sorry. She she passed away a couple of years ago. So she said to me, "Will you go with me to see Bob Dylan at the Radio City Music Hall?" I said, "Okay." So we went, and you know, I met Bob Dylan, and it was backstage. It was Bob Dylan and George Harrison and me and Sally. That was it. 
Wow. You know, needless to say, I couldn't get out of there quick enough. But uh, <laughs> what I mean to say is, <laughs> I mean, all due respect, I mean, you know, but um, I wanted to say that while we were waiting to go into this VIP backstage room, who was standing right behind me but Lou Reed? And I thought, well, that really makes sense. He, he obviously was a fan of Bob Dylan's as well. So you yes. probably know that, Barney, though. I mean, I... Yeah, I think I knew that he started out in, in fairly Dylan-esque mode, didn't he? Um, oh, yeah. There, there, are songs, yeah. there are songs on the Lou Reed box set which kind of make that fairly fairly clear but it didn't you know it wasn't very long before he was writing you know i'm waiting for the man and that was mm. that was not not to me very dylan-esque i mean well, did, it was my, sort of, did my little story make any sense or was that a complete interruption of what we're talking about no it made, it made absolute sense and i just okay. you know i mean i think just as a sort of general shout out for Joni, i mean yeah, right especially i mean we did talk about this the other day but it's worth saying again you know that the whole Jan Wenner gate thing that erupted and that idea that someone like Joni Mitchell, I mean, and obviously Stevie Wonder, et, et cetera, et cetera, will not mm-hmm. fit to be in the same <laughs> pantheon as, you know, these these sort of dead white or barely alive white males kind of thing. It's just so preposterous. I mean, you know, Joni, let's just take Joni, one of the mm-hmm. most intelligent, and to use his term, philosophical, you know, musicians, singer-songwriters ever. You know, I mean, the interview that I did with her in 1994, I mean, she just was so fascinating. So you could just have mm-hmm. talked to her about anything. She's so thoughtful in the way she expressed herself. Uh, just her diction, her mm-hmm. choice of language. She was, my God, I mean, you know, I bet of course when I never interviewed her because I guess because <laughs> she was a woman or something. I don't know, you know. But, um, that makes absolutely no sense. I mean, that story. I mean, obvious. His, his point is 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 ludicrous. It doesn't even yeah. bear, you know, addressing yeah, or, and or, or or Patty. I mean, Patty Smith. I mean, Patty. Yeah. I mean, just you, you, the moment you start to think about it, the number of incredible women who actually probably are far more interesting. In I mean, I would say that the women I've inter- interviewed over these, you always get more interesting stuff out of women. Always interesting. So, I just know that, you know, I photographed Joni Mitchell live in London right. and offstage. She was a part of that Wembley 1974 with Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. We all photographed that, meaning the cadre of photographers I yeah. referenced before. I, rem- I mean, ro- I remember Robbie Robertson was there and she's so brilliant that I can't articulate how I think of her. And the idea that I can't, so I have nothing to say about I mean, she's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. She's too brilliant to be spoken of. (laughs) Apparently, I can't even talk about it. That's how brilliant I think she is. uh, Just, do you have a favorite Joni album, Kate? Just as a matter of interest. Well, Blue, obviously. Blue would be your favorite. Well, I mean, actually, you know, I know all of them. I love that one night ride home. Yeah. But Blue is, you know, just, uh, it's so brilliant. Yeah. Martin, do you have a favorite Joni album? Hachira. Hajira's because yours. I mean, oh, it I doesn't gotta... sound like literally doesn't sound like anything ever no. made by anyone else ever. Mm. I mean, no, I, the I scrubby agree. guitars, Larry. Carl, I mean, it's Nick, yeah. Jacko Pastorius. Oh yeah, Max Bennett. Know. Max Bennett, great bass player. Everyone so thinks Ma- Jacko plays the whole record, but he doesn't. Do you know, I had Ma- forgotten that. I always think yeah. it's like Jacko and no, Joni, no. like hitting the road, <laughs> driving through the desert. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Max got in there. That's yeah. brilliant. Hajira um, is yeah. amazing. It's an extraordinary record. It sounds kind of 
not of its time. And it's, it's kind of a really timeless record that sounds like it could have been made at any point since then. In, in a um, way, it's as personal th- as Blue, isn't it? It's yes, kind it of is. It's just a and different... personal as Blue. Yeah, and it's an amazing road record, you know, where the songs are all about this kind of trek across America where she brings in everything seen through the landscape. I mean, it's an astonishing piece of work, hugely influential on, on Prince, I think. Yeah, well, Hissing Hissing of Summer Lawns was was maybe was his, his favourite, wasn't yeah. it? He absolutely loved Hissing of, of Summer Lawns. I remember going to a Prince show, and he basically the music that was playing before anyone came on stage was Hissing of Summer Lawns the whole album, <laughs> which just really yeah. it really struck Interesting. me. She really worked well with bassists, actually. You mentioned Jacko yes. and, and Hajira, but I mean, you know, the Mingus Larry album Klein. and Larry Klein, Wild Things Run Fast has some mm. has some pretty pretty astonishing bass playing on it. And mm. I think she, I guess she really appreciates bass playing. Oh, but... I got a Joni Mitchell story. Kind yes, of interesting. Okay, so this is kind of interesting. I was down in Jamaica with John Lydon in 78, and we were sitting poolside, and it was crazy. It was like... John Lydon and Lee Scratch Perry and me and Joni Mitchell was there. Oh my God! Yeah, Joni Mitchell had a <laughs> ha, has a, a, a cert, certainly she was good friends with Dickie Jobson, as I recall. And Dickie Jobson was really good friends with Chris Blackwell and a wonderful person. I loved do you, him. Do you mean Do you mean Richard Jobson of the Skids? No, I mean Dickie Jobson, who produced Countryman, the film, who oh, okay. was Sorry. a really close friend of Chris Blackwell's, who everyone really loved, including me. And John went up to Joni Mitchell's room just to, just to hang out. And I just remember when he came, I just remember, I remember thinking, oh, because, you know, he, you know, he sort of had a kind of sarcastic, nothing too creepy or anything, just like review, just you know, kind of punk type response, you know. I mean, so that's not a great story, but it is kind of amazing that there were that many. And Mick Jagger was there. This swimming pool in Jamaica. <laughs> this is, was, that's a pool party to end all pool, pool parties. You There's can't a make documentary that up. to be made about that <laughs> yeah. pool. That would be a hell of a group photo, wouldn't yeah. you? Yeah. yeah. Vivian really... would validate that, though. I that's... mean, it was crazy. I think I did know that Leiden had spoken to, <laughs> to Joni, and, yeah. and it seemed so out there and uh, and far fetched i've i've erased it from my memory but but yeah i mean that <laughs> i'd love to have been privy to that yeah sure it was fascinating and i'm sure i'm sorry we didn't get to speak really a bit more about leiden in jamaica because that is a fascinating story in and of itself isn't well, it well the but significant I think- thing was that he and i were stopped on the way coming back from strawberry hill by these two policemen who pointed these big silver rifles at us and that's really happened. That's the only time that anybody pointed a gun at my head. Wow. And and me and John just got really quiet. But they were very <laughs> aware that John Rotten was on the island. I'm not lying. And really, I'm not kidding. They were they were a, that is very curious. I, I don't know what they thought John Lydon was or what he could do. John Rotten. I don't know. Well, but, yeah. They kind of imagined that he was like filthy rich, for example. Uh, yeah, probably not worth kidnapping at that <laughs> point. So, um, <laughs> but um, why do you think the police were following us around? What? Mm, what? I, I don't know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Who knows? 
I've only been there once and I, and I absolutely loved it. And um, it's great that you continue to go back there. Yeah. We're sort of, we, we, we're sort of running our course. I'm going to just ask Jasper to tell us about a few pieces that have been added to the Rocksback Pages library in the last couple of weeks. And as I said, to you earlier, Kate, just if, if anything kind of triggers some memory or, or just opinion, just uh, dive in. Okay. Thanks, Barney. So Mark kindly, in his absence, sent me a few of the things, some quotes from a few of the things he added, and I'll, I'll go through those and I'll mention a couple of things that uh, the rest of us added for the later years as well. And I should, I think, point out that for listeners, all of these pieces are linked in the show notes. If you ever want to read one of these, you, you, you absolutely can find it there. So first of all is The Seeds Sky Saxon to Mike Oberman in The Evening Star in 1967. Teenage fans spend so much money buying expensive gifts for singers they admire. I don't want flower children to buy me expensive gifts. I enjoy receiving one simple, beautiful flower. It's such a perfect symbol of nonviolent love and honest appreciation, which I think is just very sweet. <laughs> That's wonderful. It's like something it might, someone might have said at one of the Woodstock sound outs, Kate. <laughs> Yeah, just days. one single flower <laughs> one simple beautiful flower That's next flower up power. philip elwood it's writing writing in the san francisco examiner in uh, 1967 the miles davis quintet which enters its last week at the both and tonight is an exhilarating and important jazz ensemble in fact it is more consistently cohesive than any group davis has led in its evolving style there are new sounds and attitudes his emotional impact is indescribably personal and intimate it will be acknowledged as a major jazz voice of the mid-1960s for years years to come mm. i just think that's a great take mm. on on that period miles davis and you mentioned you'd love earlier. to have been there right oh, what a oh yeah fantastic seeing that that quintet live at that time yeah wow yeah. yeah rod stewart to paul nelson in rolling stone in 1978 i believe you photographed rod stewart as well kate so uh yeah a billion times <laughs> and this uh and this and his, ties in time. <laughs> and his sweater and this ties in to other people that we've talked about as well the Sex Pistols have a big album now. A lot of money's being grossed. A couple million dollars. And they'll get paid for it. Then we'll see what they do. Give it back to the fucking record buyers. That's anarchy, isn't it? <laughs> That's right. So broad. <laughs> so broad. Moving on to Billy Eckstein to Brian Case in Melody Maker 1982. And this is just a fantastic little story. Here's one of the greatest lines in the world. We're in a little jazz joint in Chicago. God rest his soul. Train was still alive then. He would sometimes get very boring, take a very slow ballad and do chorus 1850 on it. Train now has gone through all this and he's played all he's going to play in the first two choruses. So little Jimmy Heath leaned over to me. He says, B, train's blowing right on past the money, ain't he? It's so true. <sighs> Wow. Hmm. Who oh knew I didn't know Eckstein was such a great such a great like storyteller. Beautiful yeah. gift of the gap. Blowing right on past the money. Wow. I think Wonderful. it's just a super, Wonderful. super little story. Jazz poetics. Beautiful. <laughs> Steve Reich to Mike Barnes in The Wire in ninety six. Um I heard the tape in my head and it seemed to jockey back between my right ear and my left ear, and then it went into my left ear and it went down my left shoulder and down my left arm and down my left leg and slithered over the floor to the left. And then I began to hear a reverberation, which I think is pretty, pretty fun description of. I mean, Steve Reich, he goes on to say that there are composers whose names I won't mention, who sort of look and sniff at the trends of the day and try to say, well, this is happening. I'd better try my hand at that. 
those kinds of people always fail because there's no inner necessity. There's no unconscious level at which they're working. And thank heaven for whatever I've done, for whatever value it may be. It's really me. You can take it or you can leave it, but that's who I am. What a great credo for the kind of yeah. artists that you've shot over the years, Kate. Did you ever shoot Steve Reich? I mean, he was part of the yeah, of I think New York so, downtown actually. scene. Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, I shot. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think he worked with Brian Eno for a while. He was part of this whole, you know, David Byrne, Brian yes, Eno. Yes, David Byrne, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I love that. There's no inner necessity and there's no unconscious working there. Something, mm, just to paraphrase, Yeah. yeah. Uh, very, very helpful advice for any budding <laughs> artists out Definitely. there. Definitely. Definitely. Beautiful. And moving into the... 21st century, Amy Linden speaks to Queen Latifah in 2003 for Heart and Soul. And this is pretty relevant to today, I think. I think we're getting lazy and that we're not discussing the issues that are going on in this particular world, she says, referring to other rappers. You've got to pay attention to what's going on. Read the paper, read books, know a little bit about your world. If all mm-hmm. that you're focused on is sex, then that's what you're going to be con- concentrating on. You're not going to be concerned about the fact that a bomb just blew up over here or that a plane just hit this building. You're not paying attention to the things that lead up to these kinds of things. We have privilege and we have to fight to keep freedom. The sad thing is that most people aren't even noticing that we're giving up our freedoms. We're not connected politically like we need to be. I just oh think that's, that's wow. really, really astutely put um, yeah, by, by Queen Latifah. I think it's, it's you know, still rings true just as much. Well, if she was saying that then, what the hell would she right. be saying now, right? <laughs> exactly. Oh, my God. Lastly, to end on a, on a more uplifting note, Michael oh, Kiwanuka's good. music is medicine for the soul. Paul Moody speaks to him for Another Man magazine on the 31st of October 2019. Michael Kiwanuka, a musician whose music I think is really beautiful and really sensitive. And, and he, he says, I know it sounds strange because culturally there were lots of bad things going on, but I feel like in some ways the 70s was a less inhibited time. Things didn't feel as segregated as they are now in terms of music and fashion. But then he goes on to talk about his album and his, you know, his, his response to trying to get back to some kind of connection to things. I wanted it to have the same effect as when you go to a gallery or an exhibition or watch an amazing film when you're transported somewhere else. When you experience something like that, it makes you feel alive and it fills you up with good energy. For me, that's the prime purpose of art, to make you feel like a human being and help you tackle the day. Yeah. I just think uh, that's right really on. beautiful. Nicely put. Yeah. Lovely. Well, I feel full up with good energy after this episode, Kate. <laughs> uh, it's been such a great pleasure speaking with you. Oh, thanks, Barney. We've come to the end of a wonderful episode. Of- okay. To listeners out there, do visit Rock's Back Pages where subscribers can read over 50,000 articles and listen to over 800 audio interviews. Check to see if your local library subscribes to Rock's Back Pages. If not, maybe suggest they take a free trial of the world's largest archive of music journalism. It remains for me only to thank you so much for joining us today, Kate. Thank you for uh, having me. Thanks, do go out and spend that £55, $55 on Rebel Music, Bob Marley and Roots Reggae. Amazing, amazing book of Kate's photographs of uh, Jamaican artists, Bob Marley, prominent among them. A wonderful Xmas gift that would make, if I yes. may say so. Yeah. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with the novelist and writer Michelle Faber to talk about his new book, Listen. and probably to talk about his early pieces about Nick Cave's first band, The Boys Next Door, because he was briefly like a rock critic back in his native Australia. That should be interesting. So join us then. In the meantime, this is all of us and our very special guest saying 
Goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. <laughs>Barney, can now, I interrupt? On purpose? Can I, uh, can I on purpose, yeah. yeah. Can you put this in? I remembered who had a black swimming oh, pool. Fantastic. That I was oh. photographing with David Sigerson in mm-hmm. L.A. It was Barry White. Oh. And I presume <laughs> since two is too rich and too good. I mean, it's a memory. I know I'm memory laning. But I, was... I got into the pool because I was a, a competitive swimmer as a kid. So I can, <laughs> I can swim. It's one of the few things I can do. But Chris so, Black will beat you. A breaststroke. Yeah, that's Uh because Chris gave me a head start, but then I found out later that Chris was really aquatic. He taught (laughs) water skiing down in Jamaica. I mean, he was really good. Uh, he gave me this big head start too, and I still lost, and I was good too. Yeah, yeah. yeah, The 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 black swimming pool in Los Angeles was owned by Barry Barry White, and I went. He was about a fifty meter pool, and he was there with his wife Glodine, and she had really long nails. Incredible. Yeah. I remember. Did that give, was she able to swim? And did, did those nails give nails. her like no, extra? Just me. No. <laughs> Sorry, Martin. No, saying? no, I just, I met Glodine because uh, our, our band's first gig was supporting, supporting. Barry White at the Albert wow. Hall. And yes, you had to kind of lean around the nails to shake Glodine's hand. Yes, yeah, she was really nice. <laughs> Love, fantastic, and woman. I loved really Barry White, lovely. and that's why me, I interrupted on purpose because me and Barry White, David, were at his know, house with the black swimming pool. Yeah. Barry White was is one of the people responsible for Bobby Gentry's career. Interesting, because he he Didn't was one of the first people to hear "Ode to Billy Joe," and he sent her to the right record label. So that's we, just funny thing cap- that I read the other day. Capital, wow, yeah. Capital he was record. very yeah. smart. Smart guy, really mm-hmm. smart guy. He was a smart mm-hmm. guy. Great, yeah. great producer. Extraordinary, yeah. extraordinary. Yeah. Like almost. I don't like think I appreciated spect- that. At the Phil Spector of yeah. soul in some way. Yeah, Have you ever yeah. heard his version of "Standing in the Shadows of Love" by the Four no. Tops? It's oh, like wow. Barry White's it's version. Sort of, yeah, oh, Barry it's White's version. Unfathomably brilliant. It's I so adore the top. that it's record. Amazing. <laughs> it's just like it's it's ridiculous. They sound but so good those records now. The oh Love Unlimited Orchestra ones. Yeah, yeah. I'm a real yeah. fan of his. So is David. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad. David's never told me that he uh, <laughs> did. Did David go in his pool? No. No. I did. But, and you know, did you race Barry White in the? <laughs> no, but David. <laughs> David will remember it because we were just taken by this 50 meter pool that was painted black. And, you know, and yeah, no, I just, you know, I, did, I, did I, it, I just love it. Is that the house that had a kind of tropical jungle outside it? I remember I seeing really, pictures of Barry's house at one it was point. Really, it was kind really, it was a really like nice spread. It could have been. Yeah, could. I mean, he, he, he he was. He, he was great. Yeah, spend the money. Yeah. <laughs> he definitely. He was talking about the petrol the whole time. It was during that time when there was a very, I don't know about the gas crisis. I mean, you know, I'm dating. It was a great. It was. It was just one of my fondest memories of being with David and working with David. Yeah. Beautiful. That's a great memory. <laughs>